When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark. Guitarist Kevin Armstrong has had an extraordinary career, even though it was nothing like he thought it would be. His promising solo career dissipated pretty quickly after one disastrous gig. But when one door closes, another one opens. Almost immediately after that gig, he got a phone call to do some guitar work. It turned out that the artist was David Bowie. The sessions ended with Kevin and David working out the title track for Absolute Beginners together. Kevin would find himself in Bowie's orbit for years to come. That would lead to working with Iggy Pop and Morrissey. And I haven't even mentioned the work he's done with Thomas Dolby, Live Aid, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney. And there's his solo album, Run. Definitely give that a listen. So follow Kevin at K-E-V-A-R-M-S-T on social media. Pick up his music on Bandcamp or kevin-armstrong.com. Follow us at Performance Annex on all the socials. Support through ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com is always appreciated. And without further delay, Kevin Armstrong on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay. Uh, this is Kevin Armstrong. I just want to talk to you about Performance Anxiety, a great podcast with Mark Shea about music, talking to interesting people from the music scene. I've been spilling the beans about my life, and you can find my album of Run, R-U-N, on iTunes, Bandcamp, Amazon, and all good outlets. See you soon. It's early for you, Mark, right? Yes, it's about, uh, just about 7 a.m. Getting up that early? I, actually, I usually get up right around this time to go to work but i've got the day off so okay so i've actually been up for a little while got uh my cup of coffee great and snowing here currently so where whereabouts are you based i'm in virginia oh virginia yeah Yeah, i'm uh just about 75 miles due west of dc yes yes i know it there's a there's a venue i've played there many times Oh yeah, which one? What the fuck's it called? It's, it's, it's a oh man. I've played so many places there. <laughs> it's it's nine thirty ah, club. Um, no, it's it's an old fashioned rock club uh, um, in Virginia, and it's uh, it's near DC. It's near DC. Okay, so it's probably like like Alexandria, Arlington area. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe the Birchmere. 
The Birchmere's the place. That's right. That, exactly. That place is amazing. It's a great place. Yeah. Yeah. And the Ram in, and, and the Ram in Annapolis as well. I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Ram's Head. Yeah. Yeah. That. Oh man. They. Uh, there's a bunch of really cool places to play in the area that. All those kind of old classic American club venues, which I've really enjoyed yeah. playing, you know. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's some awesome places. I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah. Well, are we started yet, or are you going to do a preamble and then we'll start talking? Uh, and, um... I'm recording already. We'll, we'll get actually into it. Great. No, no worries. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. So, you don't, I mean, I heard your po- podcast with Rob Marshall, who's a, a friend of mine from my, my, my town where I live now. And, oh, uh, excellent. And he, he's a recent arrival here on the South Coast as well. Oh, I love Rob. A lovely guy, yeah. Mm. Oh, he's a great guy. He's helped, He's gotten me in touch with, with some wonderful people. So I'm uh, very grateful to him for everything he's done for the podcast. Great. So the way I like to start things is usually to find out what interested you in, in music in the first place. I mean, were there, were there musicians in your family? Were you were you guys listening to a lot of music in the house? How did how did music well, really get its born, hooked on? I was born in 58, uh, 58, so I kind of, the arc of my life, now I think about it, and now I do more things like, um, you know, some teaching and uh, lectures in front of kids who are learning or, or um, you know, or one-man shows even, uh, which, is, which are partly sort of uh, stories and, and and, and partly music and, and uh, bits of audio visual and stuff. But I kind of, it, it made me think about that really, my own trajectory, which, which is born in 1958. Basically that's when rock and roll started, you know, yeah. just a couple of years before then. So the whole life, my whole life has followed this, this, the, the arc of the rise and fall of, of rock and roll as a, as a cultural thing, you know, in a okay. way. And, uh, and so I think about it like that, but of course uh, that wasn't my first exposure. My mother was a, kind of could have been a concert pianist she's a talented musician oh wow so she didn't really pursue that she did what women did in the 50s which she you know she got married and gave up to wash my dad's socks kind of right. thing you know? uh, but she's a talent but she did play when i was a kid so i was always around her playing chopin and uh, stuff on the piano wow um and she which she used to do for pleasure for many years and she was pretty good so there was that, and then there was you know early piano lessons for me when I was sort of six or seven or something, starting then through till I found the guitar. And also, you know, I, her father was a professional drummer and saxophone player in a dance band in the 1920s. Oh, cool! So if, so if there is a genetic thing going on with musicians, then I guess you know that's a pretty clear line. Right. <laughs> uh, through, through my mother's line, my father was tone deaf; he couldn't hold a tune to save his life. He liked music likes music but he um he, he he couldn't hold a tune at all but it's so it's all from my mother's my mother's uh line you know the musicians yeah so what drew you to guitar instead of uh, the piano then i think well it, that's a really interesting one as well because uh, my my later history with bowie and all, everything i didn't even find this out but the guy who first interested me in guitar was a guy who was in a folk group with my mother and he used to come around and they used to sing songs with a couple of her friends and, and he had a big acoustic guitar and I used to look and lovingly at it and think oh what's that all about <laughs> he was Roger Ferris now I don't know whether you know this but Roger Ferris was the singer in the Conrads oh. at, that very, at that very time with David Bowie Wow. He was playing saxophone. So I never had any inkling of that until decades later, I was writing a book about my life. And, and I, I wrote about uh, this, this guy, Roger Ferris, this bearded kind of old guy in his, must've been in his <laughs> late twenties, early thirties when I met him. And then, and, uh, you know, not, not realizing that he's actually, he was, he was the singer in Bowie's first band. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that weird? <laughs> that is- yeah. It's not the, it's not the only weird, 
kind of cosmic coincidence that led me to link with Bowie's life in some way, you know. Oh my yeah. God. So did, did you, yeah. did you study guitar at all? Were you, were you taking lessons or did you no, teach yourself? I know never formally, never formally. I had a bit of a classical education with the piano a little bit, uh, but abandoned it, you know, and lost it. But the guitar, it was all self-taught, man. It was all, wow. you know, when I was that age, be getting interested in that, it was like a golden age for guitarists, right? You had Eric Clapton and Cream, you had Led Zeppelin, you had yeah. Mark Bolan and the Bowie records and the, all these things you could pick up fairly easily yourself, status quo. You know, you could you could learn that by monkey see, monkey do, you know, which is what I did. I just picked up the guitar with my ear being the family music ear. Yeah. <laughs> I could pretty much, you know, uh, uh, copy things fairly easy. I found out I had a facility for it, you know, and I've got big hands as well. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of could uh, uh, find my way around the guitar fairly, and, and people started to notice quite quickly. <laughs> you know? So when did you just, yeah. when did you want to start playing in bands? What, what drew you into the... Like, well, tw- I, was, I was actually in a first almost professional band, you know, when I was 14. Oh, 13, wow. 14. Yeah, when I first went to high school, uh, there was a guy in the class who had a a little covers band that he was working like th- th- what they call working men's clubs around South London area and the suburbs. Okay. And they were clubs that were heavily subsidized. Uh, so beer was cheap, you know, and they were for working people. There was a, there was a, there was a kind of organization of union based working men's clubs. Okay. And we used to get play at this guy used to have a band that played cover songs at the weekends in bow ties and frilly shirts, you know, we used to get up there and play Beatles songs and things. Oh, man. And I, I, and he, he, he kind of, uh, we were in the same class of school together when I was 14. He was quite precocious, this guy, Martin Osborne, his name was. And, uh, he just said to me, to me, look, I'll give you a chance. Come and come and join the band. So I was earning money at the weekends at 14 years old. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> and my parents were quite encouraging about that, especially my mother. I mean, they, you know, they, they thought, well, it's something you're interested in because you're clearly not academic. I wasn't, I was failing at school. I was flunking all over the place. I was, oh, wow. you know, poorly behaved and, uh, yeah. and all the rest of it. But they, when I got to that, I mean, they, you know, God love them. They, they did recognize that I was passionate about that thing and I was going to probably stick to it if they encouraged me. So they did. They were great. They used to run me to the rehearsals and, and the gigs and drop me and, you know, help me move my gear around and all that. They were really good. Oh, that's amazing. Well, so many people's parents say, get a proper job, don't they? Yeah. You know, you want to do that. That's what yeah, they say. Exactly. I mean, my mother, my, my father even gave me really golden advice when I was, I think, 16 I would, there was a, a paper called The Melody Maker at that time, which was very popular in England. If you wanted to get a job in music, the classifieds at the back of The Melody Maker were full of, I mean, I mean, there are so many bands and famous artists in history who have got together through that classified section of The Melody Maker in the, in the early 1970s, you know, from Elton yeah. John to Zeppelin. To, you know, there's loads of them. That's and right. Queen. They all, started, they all started through those classified ads in The Melody Maker. So I used to go to auditions and things like that. And at 16, I got the opportunity to go to London, to leave home, go to London, join a band that had a record deal or something. Oh, wow. And my, fa- my father said, I said, shall I do this? You know, and my dad said, if you don't do this now, you'll always regret it. So, you know, you've got time to mess it up if you're going to do that. But <laughs> if you don't try it, if you don't try it, you'll always go, why didn't I do that? You know, so exactly. go do it. Was that, yeah. was that with Fiverr? That was a band called Fiverr, yes, yes. Oh, you've excellent. done a little bit of research. I see you've done a bit of digging. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that was a terrible band. That was a terrible band. I mean, it, was, it wasn't It was terrible. It, <laughs> it could have been a, a reasonable little band, 
And they were nice guys, you know, Jewish guys from North London. One of them was a child actor in the film Oliver. Um, oh, wow. And uh, so he was the kind of focus of the of attention, really, as far as any professional kind of, uh, you know, advantages came, because he was a bit of a performer. And all of us were into music. And it was, a, it was quite a good band. But professionally, a record company, you know, EMI, wanted that band to just be, it was an, it was like a boy band, you know, someone else will write the song, session musicians uh, will record the, this stuff and you'll just have your photograph taken and look nice, you know, and it was yeah. just so pretty easily it became, well, if I'm going to be serious about music, this isn't the place. You know? uh, okay. Okay. Was that when you decided to form, uh, was it local heroes SW9? Or well, was that, that after? That, that was a little later, but, okay. but in, in a way, yes, the seeds of that were, you know, trying to leave that, that, uh, kind of little professional situation that was Fiverr, which was going nowhere. And I just thought, well, I've got to do, I'll start writing some songs and I'll, I'll start finding some other guys who, who want to do this, you know, in an alternative way. So I guess it was the start of me re- rejecting the pop music world and starting to say, well, I'm going to do something which is more, you know, hopefully I can believe in or get behind or feel, feel more comfortable about in myself. Uh, yeah. So I started writing songs and then I, at the time I was living in London kind of, scratching a living, you know, in sort of odd jobs or, okay. or, or on the dole at that time, you could sign on as the unemployment. And as long as you spun them a story to say you were looking for a job or you went to a few interviews and deliberately flunked them every now and again, <laughs> you, know, you could get away with being paid to learn your craft. Wow. <laughs> oh, like, that's the way I saw it. So we were living in rough places and squats and bedsit places. And, uh, and I was just learning to play guitar and, and hanging out and, uh, uh, you know, trying to find out what that was all about. Wow. I got a chance to listen to Local Heroes not too long ago for the first time. And uh, it was amazing. A Competition was the first song that I heard. And I almost didn't go any further because I just wanted to keep playing that song. really kind of you i mean when i listen to that now i kind of um obviously it's i don't recognize part of the kind of angry young yeah. you know um iconoclast that was yeah. trying to desperately full of piss and vinegar trying to kind of say something i i, I do kind of admire that i kind of listen and think yeah you know that was a good try, but but I but I kind of at the same time I kind of cringe, you know, a little bit of thinking, oh my god. But but I'm really glad that people do like it. Sometimes people there's some spark in it that people respond to, oh, and sure. I still get letters about it now, you know. And uh, it was a, it was a start. It was somewhere to start, you know, so, to try and say something. You, know, you were singing and playing guitar. Now, were you always a singer, or was that no, when you first uh, tried it? No, well, I wasn't always, I, I wasn't really cut out to front things, I don't think. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, that band was my first, uh, first a, a kind of first attempt to do that, really. And uh, no, I wasn't really a singer. And again, that's, that's the part of it in a way, when I listen to that now, that I think is less self-aware than it should have been. Uh, you know, uh, you know I, I, I was over, I was trying too hard and I wasn't really listening in a critical way. 
uh, like I would now kind of thing. But it, so it had a, it had more confidence and more attitude than, than any ability. That's what I think about it. <laughs> it did. The great thing about Local Heroes is it, it cemented my friendship with, with Matthew Seligman, uh, the bass player, who was at the time in a group called the Soft Boys. Yes. And he, he was originally, he was in the Soft Boys and I kind of borrowed him for Local Heroes, you know, oh, and we wow. became friends. And that led on to, a, to you know, when Local Heroes... Well, what the defining um, thing about Local Heroes really was um, uh, a personal thing, which was I had a brother who was a year younger than me. Mm-hmm. He was born in 59, and he uh, was a Bowie fan. Again, this is another thing. He was like he was a huge Bowie fan to the point where he'd be down at the record store on the morning of release of a Bowie album wow. to get the album. So he was, you know, his trajectory in, with Bowie was like he bought Space Oddity and then he bought Hunker Dory and then he bought Man of Soul the World and then he bought, you know, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Pinups, Diamond Dogs, wow. you know, Low here. And then he was killed in a motorbike smash oh. in seven. Wow. Age just shy of his 21st birthday. And he'd been really a supporter of mine with the music and everything. He'd always come to my gigs and he'd come and he'd support and everything. But, uh, so he was my introduction to Bowie really, you know, and his, the albums that he bought, spent as much time in my room as they did in his room at home, you know, cause I used to borrow them. And oh, man. You know, I was into, yeah. So that was, it, that was the kind of thing. So, and then, uh, what was I with local heroes with Matthew, uh, our friendship led on to Thomas Dolby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So cause Matthew was playing with, with Thomas. Oh, okay. And, they and then uh, actually the sec- that the album that you heard competition, Thomas appears as a guest musician on track cuts on that new opium side of that record. Oh, okay. Matthew, I said, Arthur, we, we need some other texture in this thing, you know, this sort of synthesizer or something like that. And Matthew said, well, I know this young, clever guy who's doing electronic stuff, you know, you'll really like. And he, he brought Thomas in and Thomas played as a session player on my record. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And we met that way. And I was really impressed with what he did. I just thought, well, he's, he's got some other thing going on, you know, yeah. <laughs> a, a mystery to me. And, sure and, uh, did. and then when, when Local Heroes finished, it was my brother's death that really cemented the end of the band. It was like I somehow, a thing like that, such a big event in your life, it can kind of derail your plans and oh, change your yeah your path. You I know. have a I have a question about the second LP. Go on. I noticed that uh, when I looked up the information on it, it looks like the side one is listed as local heroes, but side two of the album is uh, Kevin yeah. Armstrong. So well, that's right. Well, that, I think that's that's exactly what happened. Is the band broke up during the album, ah, so there was, you know, wow. yeah, the drummer had alcohol problems, and then we were clearly the record company thought, well, you know, what you started with was a load of pop demos, and what you've ended up with is is more experimental than we want, and uh, so there was all sorts of things going on. So I just finished, I just made that new opium side myself. Um, okay. Just, 
can't show without any limit All of my friends fit so neatly in it Outrage and lazy and desperate companions A tissue we all fall down One came and told me a secret lover One didn't turn up to meet another uh, You know, uh, just completely alone So just it's almost playing. like a split album it's almost like a split album. It wasn't, we couldn't finish it as the band because the band had broken up. But I gave them the other sort of solo tracks and said, look, just make this a kind of a schizophrenic kind of two, two, two lane kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know why, yeah, I don't know why they agreed to it, but they did. Oval were great. You know, Charlie Gillett was a great guy yeah. uh, from Oval Records. Uh, I don't know whether you know anything about him. You obviously know no. a bit about the indie scene. Charlie Gillett had this label oval he was a, he wrote a book called sound of the city which is a great book he was a dj and a, a supporter of music he actually is credited with discovering dire straits lena lovich elvis costello ian dury you know he because he, 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 he was a he had this small indie record company run out of his basement and he was the guy who first gave me a break with local heroes. Oh man. Cause I just went to, went to his office and uh, played him a few songs with a, with a guitar and an amp, plonked them down in his office and he gave me a deal there and then on the spot. That's the amazing. Songs that I, yeah. So, you know, at that early age, you think, Oh, well, I've cracked it now. That's it. I've, I've cracked the music business. I'm you in. And you don't, you don't realize, yeah, it's just a tiny, it's a, just a tiny little uh, blip in the whole journey. You know? Yeah. It's just the beginning. Uh, yeah. So after local heroes, uh, Thomas Dolby had started his own thing and was clearly going somewhere. And then he called me and said, listen, I heard your brand's broken up and, do you want to, you know, I played for your, your thing, but do you want to come and play for me? Yeah. And so I went and made a couple of records with him and that led on to him, Matthew and I being a, a sort of trio to launch Thomas's career. Okay. And then, so with Thomas's career, I mean, you ended up playing on one of my favorite songs on the eighties, a song that to me encapsulates the eighties with she blinded me with science. of me and Matthew and Thomas jamming that out in a room, you know, uh, he had a, wow. you know, he was obviously doing programming and, and, uh, he was an early adopter of, of uh, sequencing technology and, uh, after craft work and it was, there was none of it. You couldn't buy a MIDI sequencer then you had to <laughs> adapt old bits of computing equipment and things like that. So that's what he did. But oh that was gosh. literally us jamming out, jamming out that song. And that was the arrangement that was a product of that band being a band. Definitely. So we, we oh. had a lot to do with that Matthew and I, yeah. I would have loved to hear you guys jamming that song out because <laughs> developing that. Oh man, it was great, and I, I learned a lot with Thomas. You know, he he's a closest thing well, apart from Bowie. I think he's probably the cleverest musician I've ever encountered. You know, it's oh, the way he works brilliant. in the studio. The way he works in a studio is extraordinary. He's not really a spontaneous jamming musician, really. Normally, mm-hmm. he's a very, he's very thoughtful what he does and very calculated, and very perfectionist. 
Yeah. But uh, I've noticed that he's been asked in later years, you know, um, the question, if you could change anything about what you did about those early records, what would it be? And he answers without hesitation, nothing. Ah, <laughs> that's <laughs> Which awesome. might seem like a, an arrogant answer, but actually it, in his case, I, I really believe it because, you know, when I first did a session with him, he made me do 47 takes of the same phrase on a, on a thing. And I just couldn't understand it from, you know, I'd been, uh, I'd been like, you go down the pub, you have a beer, you go into the studio, you play something and then you listen to it back and then you go back down the pub. Kind of yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't, he, he had this work ethic, which was totally different. And I definitely picked up on it from him and learned a lot about how to listen critically and how to improve something by getting inside it in a certain way. And, and I really learned that from him. Well, I think, uh, here in the States, he is so underappreciated. Mm. I loved him in the 80s. I was listening to it in the, his 90s stuff is amazing. Well, and, even even later, did you have you heard the map of the floating city? No, I haven't. Well, if that's passed you by, then please, Mark, check it out. Because Absolutely. that's an album that got me back together with him in 2012. There are the lifeboats. There are called me up and he said, oh, uh, you know, he had this thing with an earthquake destroyed his house in Half Moon Bay or something. Oh and and uh, they had to relocate back to England. But anyway, he started making this record in a, in a converted lifeboat in his garden at Shingle Street, <laughs> which is on a beach. And he dropped up this old lifeboat. It's called the Nutmeg of Consolation. And he built a studio in it. <laughs> and uh, he started making this record and he called me and Matthew again. And, um, and we went up and I started playing some overdubs on it. And it's a beautiful record. It's called, it's make a note of it and check it yeah. out. Cause it's some of his best work, later work. It's called uh, a map of the floating city. All right. I'm, I'm typing that down right now. Map of the floating city. Yeah. It's vintage Dolby. And we did tour it in, in America in 2012. We, he, he made this kind of a video trailer that looked like something out of a steampunk oh movie. cool and uh, we, we towed it behind the tour bus and people could get in it and leave messages for the future and he buried <laughs> the capsule in the desert or something he's always got wow. ideas you know i don't know whether you know now he's a he's a professor at uh, johns hopkins in baltimore it, I, I was gosh i was just at johns hopkins a year or so ago with my wife Unfortunately, okay, I didn't well, know. Otherwise, I didn't well, Thomas, they, they, they gave, the faculty gave him a, a, a building. And so I think it's an old Art Deco cinema. And they, wow. they said he could do it up and make it into a facility for uh, teaching surround sound and VR audio techniques. Wow. And he's trained, I think, the first cohort of students who are qualified in that in that and he's oh, he's, wow. he's a professor yeah oh my god that could be a, a whole podcast on its own jeez well really i mean if, if you I'll, I'll put you in touch if you like you can ask him <laughs> i would love that that would be that would that would I'll be a highlight him. yeah he's got a book called the speed of sound which is which goes through his whole thing but he was an interesting yeah. guy thomas was definitely a renaissance man and you're right in saying he's a little underappreciated yeah because again i maybe maybe you know you know that 
success in music is like a jigsaw, isn't it? There's all these pieces that have to fall into place for, for the whole thing to work. For sure. And if one of them's in misshapen or missing a lobe or, or, or it's not there, then the, then the thing only goes so far. And I exactly. think that's true for, for everything. So, you know, for every David Bowie, who is, who becomes a global cultural phenomenon who changes history, you get a Thomas Dolby who kind of was an also ran in a way, you know, yeah. uh, even though uh, he had many of the same, many similar qualities in, in terms of uh, presentation oh, and, and technical ability and all that. That's you, you spot on. That's that's exactly right. And and I've noticed this kind of as almost like a pattern of you kind of weaving in and out of artists' careers that you've worked with through over the decades. I think that, I think that's what's been my journey. Really, is is to do that. It's a bit like um, a bit like a Zelig kind of a. Yeah. experience you know where you where i found myself at the crossroads of several people's careers purely by i don't know what i don't know how it's just been it's just been uh, the right being in the right place at the right time having a, some making something happen out of an opportunity and meeting the right people at the right moment but it's not there's been no plan to any of it That's- i mean there's the only you know there's a lot of uh, i mean i you know i wonder what how that's happened because I, i'm not really a special you know, I don't consider myself a special musician, particularly. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just a workman like, you know, but, but having said that there must be something because you don't get patronage like Bowie and Iggy and Thomas Dalton, unless, unless there's something there, but, um, exactly. but I don't know what it is. I am, and I'm, I'm loath to try and analyze it too deeply because I've been very lucky to intersect with some of these very talented people along the way. You know? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So back, back to working in the eighties, you started with, yeah. are you working with Thomas Dolby, but you've also yeah. played on a whole bunch of other bands. I mean, you've got prefab sprout, uh, Fergal yeah. Sharkey guarding by moonlight. Well, sprout, sprout was through sprout. Sprout. These were all, all through connections with Thomas really. Cause that's what happens. These things are like spoke, like spokes in a wheel, aren't they? You know, cause Thomas and I shared a manager and a guy called Andy Ferguson, who's a terrific manager and someone I was very lucky to meet because he was, that's rare thing in the music business. Someone who is honest and had integrity. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And he, he really was a a fantastic guy and he managed Thomas. So when I was in Thomas's band, it made sense for me. I tried having a solo career again, more of which in a minute, but, um, but, but Andy managed my affairs as well as part of Thomas's thing. And then Thomas produced prefab sprouts album. That's here called Steve McQueen. But there was called Two Wheels Good, I think, in America. Okay, okay. And that's a, that's their second album, I think. And Thomas produced that and brought me in just as a kind of a overdub guy to do some guitar. Okay. On that, and uh, so that was a connection with Sprout. with Bowie was was partly through knowing Andy Ferguson as well because after Thomas's band I'd gone as felt I'd gone as far as I could with 
collaborating with him uh, in the in the 80s, I started to do my own thing again. I thought, well, I've, I'm confident enough to have another another band. So I started this band called Bush Telegraph. And Andy manages to get us a deal again with EMI. <laughs> I don't know whether I didn't learn my lesson the first time. Now, but, um, but anyway, we, he got us a deal. And so suddenly I had the whole structure of like a manager, a band, equipment, a lawyer, you know, an accountant. And uh, suddenly this, this path mapped out where we, they took me to New York to the new music seminar and they pumped money in and they, and they, you know, did a launch party and we did this whole thing. And again, it, it just collapsed under its own weight really quickly because it wasn't going to be my destiny to, to do that. And what happened was in those days, they used to invest a lot of money in, in new acts in the eighties. There was a lot of money sloshing around in the music business and right. money was pumped in. So as a sidekick of Tom's, you know, I was kind of given this, this leg up with EMI, this injection of money and interest. But then quite often what happened with a lot of acts, if they didn't prove themselves straight away, you know, your, your A&R man who, who had your back would leave the company and suddenly you'd find yourself with product in the pipeline, ready to go, but no real support from the corporation anymore. You know, and that's a yep. familiar story to a lot of people. It's not an excuse in any way, but it's, it's what happened. It's reality so we, at that point. Well, yeah. So we negotiated, Andy cleverly negotiated us out with an album in the can for Bush Telegraph, which was incidentally a kind of seven or eight piece band. So it was an expensive thing with a horn section and all the rest of it. Wow. And, um, uh, so we, we, uh, you know, we were ready to go and sign with someone else and we had a product we had, we owned, you know, ready to go. So we, we, we had one, there was one pivotal gig where we opened for a band called the Higsons in London and, uh, Andy had managed to get interest from all the other majors in, in the country. Like this band has been released from EMI. They're ready to go. They've got an album. They've got Kevin Armstrong, you know, and it's like, a, um, they were all there and we had the most disastrous gig I'd ever had oh. in my whole life where oh, no. we were, we were, it was sort of miscast on the bill and the audience took against us. And, the, and then I got a little bit pissed off and then someone started throwing <laughs> beer cans and, and it was just the worst. And by the end of the night, from having this structured sort of path and career, I had nothing oh. you know, overnight. Oh my yeah? God. So it's one, again, one of those pinch points in life where you think this, the universe is trying to, to tell me something here, you know? Oh, um, so next day, literally next day, the equipment was sold off. The accountant was sacked, you know, wow. <laughs> the lawyer was stood down and it was like, well, that's it. You've got, you know, there's no, nobody going to pick this up. Right. And you've got this wage bill and all this equipment to pay for and storage and rehearsal places and all the rest of it. And it was all like, okay, it's all gone. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that can really throw you into, into confusion. Oh, for sure. A little bit. Yeah. But at that point, at that dramatic point, you know, I got a call from a, a guy called Hugh Stanley Clark, who had been the A&R man at EMI, who was in my corner. Okay. You know, and he was, he, he called me up and he said, listen, uh, I've got this hot tip for you. Just pick up your guitar and go to Abbey Road and um, you're going to meet another bunch of musicians there and an artist will come there to work with you who uh, I can't tell you about because they're not supposed to be here for tax reasons. They've, you know, they've exceeded the number of days. They're supposed to, so they're not supposed to be working, but anyway, I can't tell you who it is. Just go and you can thank me later. Oh man. Wow. <laughs> what and you can probably guess, you know, we got there to this Abbey road and, uh, you know, uh, there was Neil from prefab scrout. Sprout, the drummer. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, Nick Plytus from Rugalator, Matthew Seligman again, the bass player, and myself. 
And we, we, we were setting up gear thinking, who's coming? You know, who's this guy? Is it going to be Michael Jackson? Is it going to be El- David Bowie? What, who's it going to be? And, uh, and then Bowie walked in, you know, wow. to the room. Oh, man. And uh, said, hi, I'm David. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice, nice to meet you. Like, we really need to know that. Yeah, Thank exactly. <laughs> yeah. So of course that was a big a big moment, you know. Wow, a, a huge a huge moment for for all of us. Nineteen eighty, late nineteen eighty four. Okay, okay. All right. So that no, yeah, it was late late eighty four. What year was Live Aid? Eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah, eighty five. Yeah. So it was late. So it was like December eighty four or January eighty five. I can't remember which, but that's that's when it. Oh, you know, he was God. there to do. He was he was in the country to do. Demos for the movie Absolute Beginners. Okay. And also, and on the same day with Jim Hem- Henson and the, and the Muppet Factory, he was doing Labyrinth. Oh, stuff. What? same time. Okay. In Abbey, and, in Abbey Road on the same day. Wow. Oh my yeah, God. So we met, we met Jim Henson and Frank Oz the same day and Fozzie Bear. And oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that session was like a zero to hero moment. Oh my gosh! Oh. For me, obviously, kind of uh, no from no career in the morning yeah. to to, meet, to meeting Bowie, and Man. we virtually I virtually helped him co-write the song "Absolute Beginners." Wow! Which was an afterthought at that session. Really? Um, well, it was like we we were there to demo a song called that's motivation i don't know whether you know that song and it's it uh, bowie performs it in the film absolute beginners okay on huge typewriter a huge you know a room sized typewriter thing that's um, so 80s it's a terrible movie that <laughs> he, he plays this he plays this character called Vendis Partners who's a a sort of has a terrible American accent and is a corporate sort of cipher for the 80s okay. you know greed kind of thing and uh, yeah. so he it's, it's quite an embarrassing turn of events but um, <laughs> uh, but he was there but this song called That's Motivation which is oh god sorry I just, no problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my daughter. I'll call her back. Um, uh, yeah, you so can take he, it if you need to. You can pause. No, 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 no. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> she can call me back. Um, yeah, so we did. We did the song "That's Motivation," which is a kind of quite a difficult jazz sort of big band number. And he made us learn it in. He made us learn it in small chunks, like a learning eight bars of it. Oh wow! Okay, because he wasn't sure. I think whether we could cope with learning anything complicated. Oh wow! Uh, so he sort of taught it to us in small chunks, and then had the, those days they had uh, you know revolving tape where you had to drop in, and yeah. then we'd learn the next chunk and, and drop in, in. Wow. the whole band. Oh my! To do it like a, in in so it was a strange disjointed kind of way of working, and we yeah. thought this this is, this is odd and. Um, but we did that. And then at the end of the session, he said, well, I've got like an hour left on the clock. 
and I've got this other song, you know, a potential song, but I, I don't know about it, but maybe we could have do something. So I just took the opportunity at that time. That's just a magic moment for me. I just said, well, look, let's sit down with an acoustic guitar and tell, show me what you've got and see if we can knock, knock something up. Wow. And that was absolute beginners. Oh my so he, God. So he, he literally had a notepad and was writing lyrics then and there because I was, and I was able to say, well, if you put this turn around here and extend this, you know, I'm show him, what I thought, you know, he said, well, this isn't finished. And I said, no, I think it is. And I, and I was able to sort of spot the emergence of that song and help him finish it. And he never credited it for me for writing or anything. And I didn't really write any of it, but I did help it come into being at that moment. Kind of an arrangement and, deal. Yeah, kind of arrangement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really. And uh, But I'm, you know, I never... Uh, I'm never ever going to complain about not being credited for that because no, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of work and it led on to changing my life. Yeah. You know? And I think that it's a, it's a perfect illustration of working with someone like him. You know, you put, you get out far more than you put in. That's also, you know, some rarefied air to say, yeah, I sat down with an acoustic guitar and wrote a song, a song with David Bowie, just the two of us. Exactly. I mean, God. exactly. And I did go on to really properly write two songs with him after that, which not everyone can say, not every Bowie sideman can say. And also at, that, at the end of that day, I think it was either that day or a, or a few days later, I got a call from him and he, he said, uh, do you want to help me put this, uh, there's this charity gig, you know, that Bob Geldof's got an idea for. Do you want to help me put a band together for it? Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, that's just a golden moment, isn't it? You know, amazing. He, well, he obviously trusted you from the beginning then because that, you know. Well, I think that, I think it was sitting down with over absolute beginners. I think that was the moment at which he must have uh, thought, well, maybe I could contribute something to what he was doing yeah. in, in the future in some, in some way. And I, so it was just a beautiful uh, opportunity converted into a, a golden moment, you know. So since we've been talking about it a little bit and you worked with him for decades, I'm assuming the way to pronounce his name is Bowie because I've heard, Bowie. I've, I've heard so many people going Bowie and Bowie. And so I'm yeah. always, no, it's, kind of... it's always, it's always Bowie. And that's what he called himself. Okay. And I've always, I've, I always thought, we always thought that growing up, you know, that's what I always thought Bowie. too, but I've heard that's the English way. Yeah. yeah. I've always heard, uh, uh, when I hear interviews about him or doing research, yeah. people that you've spoken to in the past, they've, I've, I've heard the Bowie Bowie. So I'm... yeah, so we can put that I mean, one to rest. I... It's definitely Bowie. Yeah, that's the, that, that was definitely his his pronunciation. So that led on to a kind of ten year association with him. You know, with with gaps in it. But speaking of, of bad video, you you're in a song that I think is really cool, but possibly one of the worst videos I've ever seen, which is Dancing in the Street. Across the 
Yes. Well, the story is he he uh, he's in the between the the demo session where I met him and the actual recording session for the film soundtrack of Absolute Beginners. In other words, the one you know and love is the is the one we did a couple of weeks later in Westside Studios with Langer and Stanley. And then we had Gil Evans there, you know, with a big band, oh. Miles Davis's arranger. Yeah, incredible. And uh, Rick Wakeman was there. And I mean, an amazing day of recording for that soundtrack with uh, Jerry Dammers was there. Slim Gaylard was there. Uh, uh, extraordinary people. Slim Gaylard from Hell's a Poppin', you know, and, you know, the, the, he's a old black jazz player from Hollywood yeah. in the 1920s. Extraordinary guy. And he was living in London and he was in his late 70s, but he's in that film too. And he did a wow. song in it called Stepping Out or something. There's a song of his in there. Okay. He was there. All those people were there in the studio the same day. But anyway, just before then, a week before, I got a call from David and he said, um, I've got this idea for this, an add-on for this um, session we're doing for Absolute Beginners. And it's to do with this um, Bob Geldof concert. I want to make something as an additional kind of a little thing for it. And would you come along, bring a guitar and meet me at this place in Soho in, in London, um, come along at night and 10 o'clock at night, you know, and knock on the door of this address and someone will let you in. Kind of thing. So I went along with my guitar case to meet Bowie and uh, knocked on the door of this, it was a film editing company or something in Soho. And they let me in and I sat downstairs in this little office with a pot plant and a, and a couch and, a table and there's nothing and I said and then he walks down the corridor with Mick Jagger (laughs) oh my god another pinch me moment you know of which there were many in in my association (laughs) with him uh, so we literally him Mick and myself sat and routine the song he said I want to do Dancing in the Street with Mick uh, on Saturday when we do the recording don't tell the band he's coming we'll do what we've got to do and then we'll add it on at the end and we'll just do it quickly at the end oh wow so so I'm sitting there with them working out the song which we did and then uh, on the big session for Absolute Beginners we we recorded that much motivation uh, stepping out and uh absolute beginners and then at the the end it was like oh david's asked me to teach this so i'm routining the guys in the studio we did that and then mick bounces in (laughs) man that's got to be a hard secret to keep it was great no i I was really looking forward to their faces (laughs) (laughs) i was really looking forward to like this is a great prank you know anyway he, he came and we we recorded that and then we were all hauled off to the Docklands after that session. It was like as that day had been such an intense day for everybody in that place, making all, that, all those recordings, uh, that he, they said, well, listen, we're making this little film. Come along to Docklands and there's snacks and drinks and come along and just support. So we all went on and watched that highly embarrassing video <laughs> take place. <laughs> if you ever want to laugh... There, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there. Oh, is... I've seen the silent step, yes. the silent one. Yes, yes, of course I have. People I send love it to me all the time. Yeah, I know. That kills <laughs> me. Well, I mean, that was almost that was almost our experience watching it because the playback wasn't very loud. We could see them skipping about like a pair of twats, yeah. you know, like uh, <laughs> uh, in the distance, and we were all drinking. <laughs> Look at them, you know. Uh, and yeah, I, I love the Family Guy iteration of it. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen the Family Guy one. Uh, I think that there's a there's an episode of Family Guy where he just says that, uh, he introduces it as the most embarrassing rock video that's ever been made, or something. And then, he, and then they play they play the whole thing on Family Guy. Oh my! And then afterwards, you just, afterwards you just get Peter Griffin going. 
that happened yeah. and, we le- and we let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, all power to them because they were just mucking about. They were friends. It was for charity. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it's, it's a, it's a talking point. And oh, yeah. in any career as big as those guys, you can have an off day. You can have a ridiculous moment. You can have a wardrobe malfunction. You can have a toxic drug meltdown. You can have yeah. all kinds of things which make you a more interesting individual. Exactly. And that's definitely one of them. And it was the eighties. So a, a lot of things yeah. get, are excused be, just by saying that phrase. Speaking of yeah. that, uh, I, I did hear a story, and this is just, kind of, I guess, kind of going back to Thomas Dolby for a second. I, I heard that at some point you guys were in the studio and Michael Jackson ended up calling Thomas Dolby looking for grass. Yes, that was uh, there's an album called Flat Earth by, by Thomas, which is um, a great record we, we did together. And we were working in Belgium. Um, at Dan Laxman's studio in Brussels. Uh, and Dan Laxman had a band called Telex, and he was a collector of old moves, and uh, he had this amazing collection of electronica, okay. which Thomas Thomas was really into. Oh, you know? yeah. Plus they had a plus they had a Fairlightness and Clavier and all these latest gadgets they were working with. Oh, anyway, cool. we worked for days and days on this this the Flat Earth album, the, the bones of it there. Yeah, and there was a call which uh, I took in the studio, I think, and uh, you know, it's Michael Jackson for you. And uh, I think he was calling. Yeah, Thomas did have a little friendship with him, uh, which extended to I think I think Thomas visited Neverland. Oh wow! Once, yeah, he says. I think on that call, I think Thomas got off the phone and told us that Michael had asked him if we could pop to Tibet to get him some pampas grass for his llamas or something because. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things where he, I, I guess he thought, you know, Belgium, Tibet, it's all just car drive or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't, he wanted grass, like actual grass, not weed. I think some sort of product they fed to his llamas, which is specially from, flown from Tibet. Oh my God. You <laughs> know, why not? that's just weird. It's weird. And they were, I mean, because obviously Michael Jackson, I mean, I didn't, I never met him, never saw him or anything. That's weird. You know, was, but okay, so. Back to Bowie, and it was so. I'm assuming because they were such close friends that Bowie was your conduit to working with Iggy Pop. Well, of course, yeah. Just again, uh, I got a call in '86 from David. I think I was working with um, my old friends called Alien Sex Fiend. Right. Yes. Yeah, they're a kind of goth punk band. Yeah, I remember them. I, I produced some of their early records, and I'd, I'd known Nick Wade since he was in a band called Demon Preacher in the punk days, and I always thought he was a nice, interesting guy. And <laughs> their band was amazing because they distinguished themselves over the 30 or 40 years I've known them as knowing nothing more about music today than they did from day one. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think some sort of heroic mission they were on, you know, never to learn anything, but still to be great and have a great That's thing. That's I always, I so occasionally used to help them make records just to, you know, because it was so fun. And um, we were making a record in Wales, I think, um, and I got a call from Bowie saying, get on a plane tomorrow, come and meet Iggy Pop. Wow. <laughs> so of course, I'm there. Yeah. I am there. 
you know, absolutely 100%. Bye, alien sex fiend. I love you. Yeah. Bye. And, <laughs> You're not um, going to learn anything else, so I'm going to go and... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've taught you all I know. Uh, bye. Um, so, uh, so I did turn up in, in Montreux at uh, Mountain Studio, or what was then Mountain Studios, Queen's wow. Place in Montreux. And it's on the side of the casino on the south side of Lake Geneva. It's a oh, uh, attractive setting. So you're working with and, these icons um, in the most beautiful locations in the world. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I mean, and I still don't really, I kick myself every day for not making a better fist of it in a way. Because, you know, the odd thing is, Mark, you know, now in my 60s, I have had this amazing chance to redo some of these things that I've done. But that first time around, with Bowie and Iggy, really, I wasn't a guitarist. I was on the fallout from my, the failure of my solo career as a singer-songwriter, right? Okay. That's where I was. Wow. When I first met Bowie, I wasn't a session guitar player. So I wasn't like there were so many other guitar players out there who could have done a better job than me in terms of sonically and everything else and what they knew about guitars and what they knew about how to make a sound. And I really didn't know that shit. And even through the recording of Blah, 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 I, I just felt like I was out of my depth. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just, why am I here? Kind of thing. I'll do, I'll do this and I'll really enjoy it. And it's great. And I even got asked to put Iggy's band together, which I did. And we toured for a year and a half wow. uh, after that for the blah, blah, blah record. And it's a great record. Lots of yeah. it. It's, it actually is a great, it's almost a lost Bowie record in a way. Some of the songs on it are really great. Oh yeah. It's got it. I mean, the iconic song, real wild child. I mean that, yeah, that's, that's yeah. That and and uh, the the Iggy songs that Bowie was singing on Let's Dance. That was that's my introduction really to Iggy Pop because I was born in the early seventies, so seventy three. So I didn't know the right. Stooges or anything like that. Yeah, my, I had I had come across Iggy as a kind of offshoot from Bowie because he was always associated with Bowie mm-hmm. early on. So I'd heard Lust for Life and the, the you know the Idiot and yeah. those records, and and then investigated Stooges records. So I knew I knew quite a lot about Iggy before I met him. You know, in terms of the music, I'd been really into it actually. A few times I've been obsessed over various albums. You know, so it was a fantastic opportunity for me. And uh, when I met him, I. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I thought he might bite the head off a chicken. (laughs) But he was actually a collegiate, very articulate, very cultured, very nice guy straight away. And we went out within hours of meeting. We were, we went on a little boat trip around uh, Chateau Chillon. He was talking to me about Byron and how he, how Byron had uh, hung out here. And and he obviously knew a lot about literature and everything else. And again, again, that's the thing about Bowie which is so rare, and Iggy to some extent too, is these guys are not, a lot of pop stars you meet are rock stars. They're not the sharpest tool in the shed. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they, they do one thing really well and uh, they've got talent and the rest of it. But these were different types of people. These weren't people who were fundamentally only that. Right. You know, yeah. they, they were often the smartest person in the room talking about Japanese classical theater or um, yeah. Gnosticism or 
or you know you know what I mean poetry yeah. or anything because they were really renaissance people they were really well-rounded human beings yeah. who had more interest than rock and roll and they brought all that into their rock and roll and that's why Bowie is so resonant today because he's more than just a fucking singer you know he's yeah. like he was a, a true visionary who had so many strings to his bow and that's all shot through the work and you can't help but make something that's deeper at that point. And that's what I think But with both of those guys, Iggy, again, you know, he's a, he's more of a raw, you know, visceral individual. And I think that his and Bowie's dynamic was really interesting for me to see at that point, their relationship. Cause I yeah. think each of them had something, each of them, had something that completed the other or the other wanted. I think Bowie wanted more of Iggy's animal side. Yeah. You know, the oh. pure rock and roll animal fearless kind of thing. Yeah. And Iggy wanted more of Bowie's intellectual approach okay. as well. And I think they, they really, they really were good friends because of, they were so different. Was working with them similar or did they have diff completely different approaches into the studio? Well, that album was something of a, uh, I, I think about that. And a, a lot of the work, the groundwork for that album was done by the time I got there. Okay. You know, they, they'd already done it. And so quite a lot of it was a box ticking or a sort of Bowie would come with a list of tasks on a clipboard, you know, to do today, guitar on this, backing vocals on that, or whatever. So, so it wasn't, I wasn't there at the creation moment of those songs. Right. And many of them also, that, the, what characterizes that particular piece of work I think uniquely in Iggy's thing, apart from maybe some things on the idiot or whatever, was it was all drum machine. It was all drum program. There wasn't a band. Ah, uh, okay. no, Blah, blah, blah wasn't a band. It was just me and Erdl Kazilke and Bowie and some, and David Richards engineering. And, and so they were, those tracks were assembled very much like, a, like modern tracks are now by a couple of guys at computers starting off doing things. And then, then things overdubbed. And so, so, the way they work was, I think Bowie was really in charge of that whole production. It was one of my pussycats. I was going to say, <laughs> I couldn't tell what that was. I'm like, do you guys have bears? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bear attack. So I think that it was, it was, it, they were assembling it quickly. I think Bowie was paying, you know, Bowie was the patron of that record. Iggy didn't have a record deal at the beginning of it. Ah, okay. I wow. think Bowie was, uh, Bowie, uh, that was one of the points in Iggy's life where Bowie was saying, come on, let's write some songs, make you an album, let's get you off the ground, you know, uh, because it was a, it was a low point in Iggy's career and uh, it kickstarted a new era for him oh, in, in a way. Really did. So you've done some co-writing with, with, Bowie and, and with Morrissey, you know, and I, I want to get into that, but how does that happen? If, if like you're saying, you weren't there for the, the inception of the songs, when, yeah. when does that happen? Are you, are you, it does like David or, or, or Morrissey, do they say, Hey, let's get together and let, let's see if we can, if well, we've got a chemistry. The co-writes I've done with Boris, with Bowie and Morrissey came about in a, 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 there's some similarity in a way that there's two songs I wrote with Bowie were, old songs of mine which i was playing the riffs from at soundcheck oh you know, okay when you play at soundcheck i was just testing an amp or setting up a guitar or something and i started playing something and both on both occasions the, the song run from tin machine one and uh, the song outside from the outside album yeah i, I were uh, my bowie, bowie co-writes it's happening now The mental and evil is found 
were things that I was playing in, in his earshot and he came over and said, can you give me that? I like that, you know? Wow. And uh, so th- that, uh, and the Morrissey was different in that I'd f- figured out that I thought that the way that him and Johnny Marr wrote together was that if you strip the vocals off a, a Smith's records, they almost sound like perfectly finished guitar instrumentals. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're you're so, right. There's much more harmonic richness and melody in the guitar parts than there is in Morrissey's part. Right. And I thought that Johnny Marr must have given him pieces that he'd conceived and were pretty complete and let Morrissey do his four notes over the top, you know, yeah. and write the great lyric and all that. And that's how I figured out that that must have been their method because I don't see how they could be in the same room and, and come up with that stuff. So uh, okay. when it came chance to work with Morrissey, I did the same thing. I just gave him, I threw a lot of guitar instrumentals at him that I worked on and chord sequences and things and just, just gave them to him. And then he came back with completed vocals over what I'd done. Wow. On the rack I was, easy meet and the reason is the goodbye. A reason is the How did you start working with Morrissey? I, I've heard. Well, again. after 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 you work with Bowie and Iggy, right? You know, you, you people notice that. Yeah. So some people want to say, "Well, I want to work with him." So I had started to have a a blossoming kind of session career where people would call me up to play on records, and and at that time there was good money in that. You know, to yeah. go and play an overdub on a, on a record, you could get good money, and and. Um, and then I got a call one day from somebody at Rough Trade saying, Johnny Marr uh, has left, you know, Smith has broken up, Morrissey would like to meet you. So I just went along for a cup of tea with, and a biscuit with Morrissey, you know. And, and, uh, <laughs> and he said that he wanted to continue the Smiths and get a new guitarist, and would I be interested? Um, and I said no, because I thought that he... I, said he remind I actually told him <laughs> that he reminded me of the the night in the black night in the Monty Python movie <laughs> hacked off and said come back is only a scratch or whatever you know <laughs> and because I I thought if if you wanted to do some records then I was interested in that but I wasn't interested in being part of the Smiths because I didn't think the Smiths could exist without Johnny Marr oh yeah so we we you know I went away and then I got a call about six months later or a year later or something from Clive Langer from producer saying listen we are making a Morrissey record and uh, would you like to come play so of course wow I was there for that and then then I pitched him some that was for the album Bone a Drag I don't know whether you know that record yep it's like a sort of it's got some reprisal of more earlier Morrissey solo work and some originals and the originals I had something to do with but 
but it's a strange album, isn't it? Because yeah. it's not, it's not really a new, it was supposed to be a new Morrissey solo record, but he somehow, you know, got <laughs> depressed in the middle and gave up or something. God. Something happened. Don't know. Uh, yeah. That's a weird one. That's, but, yeah. but I mean, you were working with some amazing people at the time. So we get, you know, there's Bowie, Iggy, but you're yeah, also Morrissey. Yeah. Kaziah Jones, Barry Adamson, Peter Murphy. I mean, these guys yeah. are amazing yeah. artists. Yeah. Well, Barry was uh, Barry was the second bass player after Phil Butcher had to leave uh, um, uh, the Blah 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 tour. Oh, Barry okay. came in as the bass player for the latter half of that, so he um, so we knew each other from then, and he's oh. he's fantastic. He's great. Oh, I love um, that solo stuff. Is yeah. So he, he we lived we lived only you know a minutes from each other in West London at that oh, time, wow. and so when he was making, I think the Man with the Golden Arm, he just called me and I went and played some stuff for him. Yeah, who else? Who else was around at that time? Yeah, Kaziah Jones. That was a uh, I after sort of during Tin Machine thing, which is another story altogether, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, before yeah, between the end of the Iggy tour and Tin Machine, there were a few things that happened to me. I mean, God, we've got we, you know I haven't got much enough time to talk to you because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm rehearsing for a solo show and all, next Saturday I'm doing an hour and a half solo show about Bowie. Oh wow! And I'm playing in, in my hometown. It's his birthday on the January the eighth, and um, yeah. I should have been with Mike Garson in California doing a, a Bowie alumni kind of project, oh. but COVID has made that impossible. So I'm, but I am doing a solo show uh, for, for Bowie's birthday oh, in my awesome. hometown club here oh, that's um so you're running we're running a little low on time set so let's hit the new album there's, when, so, much, there's so much more well, as well i just got to have you back on we, we got to do another yeah. episode yeah at what point okay so the, the couple questions that I've, I've got for you you ended up working with paul mccartney and it was really awkward it was awkward and i feel so bad about that that was one of those one of my sort of things that could have been another you know, huge moment for me, but I, I, I basically was, I was co-opted into a live band to do a TV show somewhat based on the Letterman format. It's called the last resort. And it was a live, it was with Elvis Costello's guys, Steve Naive and Pete Thomas and a bass player from LA called Steve Lawrence. And we were a live band and we backed the artists actually live on stage. There was no pre-record. It was all live. Wow, that's it was awesome. a chat show. Yeah, it was really great. And so we got to play with Mark Armand and Alexandra O'Neill and Was Not Was and all kinds of people came on and played. And McCartney was the last person on the season who came on. So we played with him all day in the studio and it was the first live TV he'd done in 22 years or something. And uh, we played a couple of rock and roll songs. There's a couple of YouTube clips of it uh, with long, we we played, um, uh, saw her standing there. I don't get and I don't get around much anymore. Or something oh, like that. cool! We played this song. to me and said well, would, you, would you like to come and, and play on an album and he made me a really good offer and um so of course i i did but we didn't really hit it off i don't know why again i think it was because maybe again at that time i you know i wasn't quite mature enough to really appreciate the role i was supposed to fill there yeah. and i was just trying to be i don't know too arrogant <laughs> or something I, I i i you know i took a load of recording gear down to the cottage 
nearby where we were recording. I think that was a stupid move for me to set up a studio, a ride, you know, in a place where I was, it just wasn't really appropriate. I was supposed to be there to play for him. And I, right. I, it was clear, it was clear that I was still doing my own kind of work. You know? <laughs> Silly. Anyway. And then, um, yeah, so I played for him for a few weeks in the studio and an album called flowers in the dirt with Elvis Costello yep. in the, in the production chair. And I don't know whether anything I did with him ever made it out again. And there's a, there's a more of a story about Paul McCartney years later as well, because uh, there's so many more stories. I wish I could spend more time, but I do have to, I do have to call it soon. All right. Well, um, we can do some more of this, Mark. Yeah. Well, let's, we'll set up another time, but what made you do a solo album? How did that come about? Well, you know, it was actually, you know, Bowie dying and then me getting back together with Iggy Pop since 2014. Before that, I'd been doing a lot of studio work on my own, in my own studio. And I've been writing songs all this time and doing things just for pleasure or whatever. Okay. And after Bowie died, I just it just galvanized me. I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to get together some of this work and put it out. Now that I feel happier about what I'm doing, you know, I don't, I don't have any pretensions. I want a solo career or going to be a pop star or anything like that at my age. I don't care. <laughs> I've just got, to, I've got to leave this work for posterity in some way and make it exist other than on a couple of hard drives from the last eight years. Right. And, you know, my so I just got together and I, and I put it together and that's the run album, which, which is, um, I've really enjoyed as a completion. And I've enjoyed it so much that I'm seven tracks into a new body of work right now, Excellent. which I'm very happy with. Yeah. So I've moved to the coast in the last eight years. As I say, I've, I've now recently stopped touring with Iggy Pop. Uh, after a six-year run with him again, okay. which has been lovely. Wow. Um, we'll talk about that next time because there's lots more to say about this. Ab- absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry saying, if it's boring, but it's great. I like talking about it. Not <laughs> a, not boring at all. I've listened to the to run several times, and, and my favorite keeps changing. And so currently, it's the way of all flesh. That's my oh, favorite great. track on the album. It yeah. was Dog Ate My Gyro last week. Okay. So, but um, well, I'm, I'm really glad because that's, I mean, I, you know, I hate to blow my own trumpet, but that's the sign of a good album is when, is when your favorites change. If you, if you do like the songs and, there's, and your favorites shift, then it means it's got some legs and it'll still sound good in a few years, you know. Where can people find the album and how can they buy it and they follow you on social media? It, okay, they can find it on my website, www.kevin-armstrong.com. Okay. So they, or they can just Google Kevin Armstrong. I think I come up pretty near the top of Google. Yeah. And, or they can find it on iTunes, Amazon, Bandcamp. It's called Run. Or they can PM me through Facebook and I'll, I'll post them a CD if they want a CD, something like that. So it's, and you've got a new single out, that, uh, a recent single out on Bandcamp. Well, I put a track out. It's called a track called "Save Your Breath." It's just just me and a six string bass, uh, tenor, a baritone guitar. Thank you. And I just made that. I wrote that during lockdown. It's it's at a low point of melancholy, you know, yeah. during lockdown, it's- walking by the sea. And then it coincided with a, a coffee mate of mine, Tim Nathan, who, who was making motion, uh, not motion, um, motion capture pictures of of the sea and the sky. And I said to him, I'd seen his work and I said, Tim, I think I've got this song that might go with your pictures. 
together so i released it for for, for that reason because because tim released it as part of an exhibition oh and, wow. uh, and we put it up on youtube and it looks i'm pleased with that but that's part of a new collection of songs the current things i'm working on are very much louder guitar quite aggressive oh right. um things which uh, i'm pleased with and i'm doing that phase of the record now so i'm i'm, I'm into that oh know? wonderful well thank you so much for spending the, your, your afternoon with me and we will definitely set up a part two of this and and get into some more details for sure that's great so nice to meet you mark and thank you i hope i uh, hope someone out there is interested oh, in, the, in the story of story of an old rocker but there you go 